You're listening to the Vibrant Happy Women podcast, episode number 106. Welcome to the Vibrant Happy Women podcast, stories of vibrant women living happy lives. And now your host, Jen Riday. Hey there. Welcome back to Vibrant Happy Women. I'm Dr. Jen Riday, your host, and I'm a mom of six, and I'm all about helping women shift from burnout to taking care of themselves all the way up to living their purpose. So I'm so glad you're here. On our last episode, I spoke with Gina Brotman all about overcoming perfectionism and fear and living more authentically and vulnerably. It was a beautiful episode. And if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and do so at jenrideaycom forward slash 105. Today, I'll be talking with Terodai Trent, who happens to be Oprah's all-time favorite guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show. To put it succinctly, Terodai is a woman of courage, and you're going to love her story. So let's go ahead and dive in. My guest today is Terodai Trent, and she was on Oprah's stage as Oprah's favorite guest of all time. As a young girl in a cattle herding village in Zimbabwe, Terodai dreamed of receiving an education, but instead was married young, and by 18, without a high school graduation, she was already a mom of three. Terodai encountered a visiting American woman who assured her that anything was possible, reawakening her sacred dream. Terodai planted her dreams deep in the earth and prayed they would grow. They did. And now not only has she earned her PhD, but she has also built schools for girls in Zimbabwe with funding from Oprah. The Awakened Woman Terrorized Book is an accessible, intimate, and evocative guide that teaches nine essential lessons to encourage all women to re-examine their dreams and uncover the power hidden within them. Welcome to the show, Terrorai. So glad you're here. Thank you for having me. So I cannot wait to dive into your story to go from goat herder to PhD to building schools in Zimbabwe. Amazing. And of course, being Oprah's favorite guest of all time. But let's start with just something simple. One of your favorite quotes. I would like to say this quote from my mother. See yourself as the creator of your own destiny, knowing that you have the power to shape your future and achieve your dreams. Mm. So tell us more about how that quote has inspired you. My mother has always been my compass, my moral guide in life. And um, she helped me to believe in myself before I could um, know what I was doing in this life. And uh, she guided me over the years. And uh, as in your introduction, you know, I had um, four children before the age of 18 because I was married very young and uh, without a high school diploma there I was living in abject poverty. And I realized that earlier on in my own life, I was just going through the life that my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother had gone through. I was just following this vicious cycle, this generational cycle, the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and early marriage. But I wanted a better life for myself. Mm-hmm. So when um, when we gained our independence, I was hardly 22 years of age and I was expecting my sixth child, number five. 
Mm-hmm. And when uh, this woman from America, her name is Jolak, but then I didn't know that was her name. She came to my village, my rural village in Zimbabwe, where we had no running water, no electricity, nothing. And she found me seated in a circle with these other women. And uh, it was her first trip to Africa. And so she happened to come to our village and she asked me one fundamental question, which she had asked the other women, what are your dreams? What are your hopes? I had no idea that as a poor woman, marginalized, oppressed, just growing in a society that never saw the value of women, I was supposed to have a dream. So I kept quiet. And she said, young woman, you've been quiet. What are your dreams? And when I opened my mouth, I became a chatterbox. And I said, I want to have an education. What kind of education? I want to go to America. I want to have an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and a PhD. And the Jolak looked at me and she said, if you believe in your dreams, and if you work hard, they are achievable. And I believe that she would just look right into my eyes and say, yes, you can achieve your dreams. And I'm thinking, how can I achieve a PhD when I don't have a high school diploma? when she can see that I'm expecting a child. And um, there was something about it, something about the way she talked about achieving my dreams, the way she made me believe. She inspired me. I ran to my mother and I told my mother that I met a woman who made me believe in my dreams. And my mother said, what dreams? And I said, to go to America, to have an undergraduate, a master's and a PhD. And I think at that point, it was music to my mother's ears. Mm. Because my mother said, Tererai, if you believe in these dreams and you achieve these dreams, not only are you defining who you are as a woman, but you are defining every life that comes out of your womb and generations to come. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's powerful. So in the book, you talk about having five dreams. So you shared four. What was the fifth one? So when my mother said, uh, write down your dreams and bury them the same way we bury the umbilical cord. I come from a culture where when a child is born, the female elders of the community, they snip the umbilical cord or the birth cord of the child and they take a piece of a cloth from the mother's dress and they tie that umbilical cord and bury it deep down into the ground with the belief that when this child grows, wherever they go, whatever happens in their life, the umbilical cord will always remind them of their birthplace. It's an old tradition and my mother said, write down your dreams and bury them and wherever you go, whatever happens despite the abuse in your life, those buried dreams who always remind you of their importance. So I wrote down my four dreams and I was ready to go and dig the ground and bury my dreams. And my mother said, read your dreams back. And when I did, and she said, Terry, I see these dreams, all your personal dreams, but always remember your dreams will have greater meaning when they are tied to the betterment of your community. And I waited and, I, and I'm thinking, what does that even mean? 
Mm-hmm. And my mother was a very silent woman. She repeated the same thing. Your dreams will have greater meaning when they are tied to the betterment of your community. So I would end up writing my fifth dream. When I'm done, I want to come back and improve the lives of women and girls so the girls, they don't have to go through what I had gone through. And I went and buried my dreams. And I realized my mother Somehow she was handing me an inheritance. It's not only about our personal goals in life, our financial goals in life, but it is about how that education and how those goals are connected to the greater good. So it would take me eight years to accomplish my GED. And Mm -hmm. uh, that time I needed five classes of GED to qualify. And we were still under the British education system where because I was already an adult, an adult student, and I could not fit into in a classroom. So I um, ended up doing correspondence. It would take me eight years to do those correspondence to accomplish the five classes that I needed. Hmm. I would do a class at a time because I did not have enough money. And I would find the little money that I could find from work from my mother because my mother used to have gardens and uh, field and she would harvest her crops and sell. And I would sit down to write those classes and go to this rural post office and um, mail my classes to a place called Cambridge in Britain, a place that I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. And I would wait three, six months for that brown envelope to come back and I would go to the post office, open that brown envelope and realize that the two subjects that I had taken, I have a U and I have an F, I have failed. And I would go back and try to find money to repeat the same classes and I would go and post those results and they would come back six months and I have a C and I have a D and I would come back and I would find money and I would try my best to study hard and write again again and send those results up until eight years, I achieved my GED. Wow, that's amazing. So that's amazing in and of itself. But after reading your book, The Awakened Woman, I want you to tell us more about the story of your husband during that time and and what it was like to be studying and hiding that money to send. How did you do that part of it? That sounds really challenging. It was very difficult, but I was also surrounded with women like my sisters, my cousins, my mothers, who really encouraged me to say, if you have these dreams and if they're driving you, they're driving you for a greater purpose, you have to hide all your money because that time I used to do some peace work and I would hide every penny to save for my coming to America. And I would hide my money in um, cornmeal. You know, we use cornmeal as part of our meal, we cook sadza, what we call sadza, and no man cooks. So I knew that by hiding my money in the cornmeal bag, my husband would never find it. Ah, and I would find other places and I would give my money. But then I had problems because I was so nervous. I lived in fear that one day he would find it. I always thought, I, you know, what about, you know, I become so stressed out and he asked and I just panic and give him the money. So and I ended up having dreams and dreaming, actually panicking and telling him. So I had to take that money away and give it to my, to my sisters and my cousins and my sister-in-law to hide for me. 
So I had all these monies with different people and it reached a point where I didn't even know how much they had. <laughs> and I just trusted that they were not going to use my money. And um, it was amazing that one day we all came together and they were counting all the monies and they gave me and I realized I now had enough money for my plane ticket to come to America as well as for one semester at Oklahoma State University. Wow, amazing. Yeah. Well, tell us more about the struggles that you and some of the other women in your family were facing with their husbands and what it was like to be a woman there. Like how difficult it is as a woman to have choice and empowerment and education, all of those things that you talk about in your book. Women in every society are silenced. And also in Zimbabwe, we had women who are silenced because of their gender, denied the right to education, denied the right to making decisions, to be in political power. So I grew up in that era where women were more marginalized and silenced because of their own gender. And, you know, I talk about, I come from a long line of generations of women, women who had been married very young before they could define their own dreams. My great-grandmother became the fifth wife, number five, to my great-grandpa, and it was a polygamous union. And my own grandmother would also go through the same pathway and became the sixth wife and married off when she was very young. And my mother would also do the same thing. And also, I also went through the same thing. So it's this pathway of silencing of women that I went through. And I always talk about my grandmother, I visualize. And even in the book, I visualized my grandmother in a race, born into this relay race, a race of poverty. And as she's born, she's holding this baton and she's running with this baton, the baton of poverty, the baton of early marriage, illiteracy, the baton of ugly circumstances that you can think of. And she runs and she hands over this but to my grandmother. My grandmother grabs that baton of poverty, the baton of illiteracy, early marriage. She runs with that baton. She runs so fast. She hands that baton to my mother. My mother grabs that baton of poverty, the baton of illiteracy. She runs and she hands that baton to me. I never wanted that baton. It was never part of my race. And my mother was my because she, despite the fact that all these women that I'm talking of were exchanged for a cow, also exchanged for a cow. We marry off our young girls with the hope that we are improving our culture. But in turn, the same young girls, they grow up in poverty. They hand over the same illiteracy, the same poverty to their own girls. It has to stop. And I think those kinds of encouragement, that's what really made me want to achieve my dreams. And the reason why I buried my dreams, the reason why it took me eight years to accomplish a GED that I know many people can accomplish that within six months. But I knew I was a GED to break this vicious cycle of poverty in my own family and be able to extend that king down of that to the whole community. Oh, that's beautiful. So you had six kids when you went to the U.S., is that right? 
Yes, I had six children and um, it was tough because when I arrived in the U.S., my goodness, after three months when my children arrived, I realized they were bleeding from their gums and they were missing vegetable fruits because in America, we had only access to fries and hamburgers. And uh, I ended up going to university and I approached the um, vice president of uh, student affairs and I said, I need help. I can't to see my children going through this We're living in poverty in America and um, yeah. Dr. Bia said oh, we can ask a local store to provide you with fruits and vegetables sometimes they have fruits and vegetables that are going bad and at the end of the day they throw them away sometimes you can pick good ones from those that they're throwing away. I hope you don't mind feeding your kids with those fruits and vegetables and I said no so I um, we went to the store and the store manager says uh, you know in this country if we give you these fruits and vegetables and if something happens to your children, you might end up suing. And I said, I have no time to sue anyone. I need the children. So the store manager said, here is an arrangement. I'm going to put the four o'clock. You have to be here to pick your fruits and vegetables and go and feed the children. Ah. 99% of the time, I was late to that cardboard box. Ah. And I would find the fruits and vegetables inside the trash and sometimes scattered in the trash can. And I would retrieve those fruits and vegetables, wash them, feed my children and ask the fundamental question. Who am I to complain that my children are eating from a trash can when I know there are thousands and hundreds of children in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, who are on the streets, homeless children who are eating eating from trash cans that no one is washing. And who am I even to complain that I live in Oklahoma in a trailer house where we don't have electricity. During summertime, it's so hot. And during wintertime, me and my children, we huddle to find any warmth. Who am I to complain when I know in America and in most Western countries, women who are homeless, they have no shelter. They live on the streets. Who am I? Those things ground me, those thoughts grounded me in ensuring me that yes, I am here, I have a better life, I can see the end of the tunnel, the light, I can see it, and I am here to achieve my dreams and I will do it. Yeah. Well, so I love that. And so you made it to the US. Tell us the story of getting your husband to agree to let you go. This is a great story. <laughs> so, you know, during that time, because we had just come from a colonial system, so all our systems were based on that colonial era where women did not have permission to get birth certificates for their children. You have to have your husband to do that. And um, women did not have uh, bank accounts. You can't have that. You don't have an, an ID. Uh, you don't have that. So for me, when I got accepted at Oklahoma State University, I I knew I wanted to come to this country with my children and it was very difficult. My husband denied. He said, no, if you want to go to America, you can go on your own. You're not going with the kids. And I begged him and I, he said, no. So I ended up going to my mother and I said, mother, I really want to change my life as well as my children's life. I don't want to leave my children behind. So my mother said, um, well, maybe there's someone in the family 
in your husband's family who might listen to you and uh, convince your husband. And I never thought of that. So I uh, came back from my mother and I went to his sister and the sister said, yeah, you know, and the sister was a Pentecostal church woman. She said, yeah, we can pray and maybe things will change. But here's what we are going to do. We are going to do fasting. I think we took a fasting of 10 days or so. And um, I remember getting so hungry and praying and we went to my husband's workplace and he still said no. Then I thought, well, my mother said, go to the village where he comes from. So I went to the village where he comes from and I saw an uncle of his and he was uh, a guy married to three wives. And as I approached his compound and I told him what I needed and he said, no, you know, women like you, terrible, are terrible because you want to influence our wives going to America and leave your husband around. No, you are not going to do that. No, I'm not going to beg your husband to allow you to take the children. And I'm crying and I could see that goodness. <laughs> There's no hope here. And uh, as I was getting to go, he said, OK. Okay, let me accompany you to get out of and get my next bus to go back. And on our way, he said something that changed the whole thing. He said, Teredai, I don't know of anyone in this village who does not want to go to America or in Africa. Everybody wants to go to America. Have you tried to ask him to go with you to America? And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I've had enough beating from this guy. I'm not going to do that. So he said, well, here's what I know. With my little knowledge, I know that if a man beats you in America, they put him in prison. It's different from here. Gosh. And I'm looking at this man. I'm saying, oh, my goodness. And I rushed home and I told my husband, I said, well, you know, we can go together. And he said, oh, yeah, sure. I'll sign the, the birth certificates. Mm -hmm. I'll sign whatever is needed for the visa. Mm -hmm. And so he ended mm -hmm. up signing so that he could come with the children. Mm -hmm. And so you went to the U.S. and you started working on your bachelor's. And so in the book, you describe how he was beating you. And what happened to relieve you of that situation? So when he came to the United States, you know, unfortunately, he continued to beat me. And I think it was much more worse because he now realized that I was now achieving my dream for an education. This was totally different from home. And I think it escalated his anger in many ways. It's um, gosh, whether he felt he was losing me, I don't know. He was just emotionally and physically abusive and I would hide you know the beatings and I would you know I would go to school with a blue eye or a bruise and I would you know come up with all kinds of stories but unfortunately one day I think he overdid it and our neighbor heard the beatings and I was crying and the police she called the police and they found me uh, you know all in blood and wow then they asked him to leave and they said we are going to process your deportation right now and he wanted to come with the kids and they said no as abusive as you are you don't have a right to take the children yes yeah. so how did you feel when he was finally gone was it a day of celebration i mean mixed feelings 
You know what's interesting about women who live in abusive relationships? Sometimes you feel there's these mixed feelings. You feel guilty that, uh, gosh, I should not have cried during the beatings. Maybe he, he could have been here with the children. Because remember, I was now about to take my graduate school and it was intense taking care of children and going to school. So there was always this piece in me that says maybe if he was here, he would be helping with the children. But there was also another piece in me that was saying, hallelujah, mm-hmm. now I'm free, mm-hmm. I'm free. But it's always difficult. There are no easy answers to the silencing of women up until women themselves step up and say, yes, this is it. And it takes the power of our connection with others. And in my case, I had others who rallied behind me. Dr. Beer and his wife and the church and other people rallied behind me and really helped me to stand on my own and to realize this is my awakening. And I think it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book to say that the silencing of women is everywhere. But when women are given the opportunities and women get the support that they deserve, Women can excel and women can heal not only themselves, but they can also heal the world. Yes. Well, I loved your book so much. I think everyone needs to read it. And again, that's called The Awakened Woman. It's probably in my top 10 favorite books of all time. It's musical and amazing. I I say musical because you write in a way that makes the pages come alive. It feels like just I can almost hear a song through the pages. But you said women all have this opportunity to awaken and listen to their dreams. And I'm going to read a section in the book where you talk about the importance of speaking your dreams and sharing your stories. So you say in the book, you're quoting Rankin. It says, every time you tell your story and someone else who cares bears witness to it, you turn off the body's stress response, flipping off toxic stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine and flipping on relaxation responses that release healing hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, nitric oxide, and endorphins. Not only does this turn on the body's innate self-repair mechanisms and function as preventative medicine, it also relaxes your nervous system and helps heal your mind of depression, anxiety, fear, anger, and feelings of disconnection. Talk more about that, how important it is to first understand what our dream is and then to speak it and to share our stories in a sisterhood. Mm -hmm. You know, the sisterhood, it's real if we want to achieve our dreams. And I talk about the gathering of women as we share our stories. There is no greater burden in an untold story. You go around with your untold story, it causes stress in you. But when we share our stories, we sit in a circle with other women. They hear our pain and our joy in our stories. There is also an awakening in them to want to tell their stories. And in many cases, as we share our stories as women, we are telling stories that others are dying to tell, but they don't have the courage, the tenacity to tell those stories. So we become the bridge. In telling our stories, we are enabling others to open up, to de-silence themselves and begin to share. And in that sharing, when women share and when we come together to share, there is healing 
that happens because we are seeing ourselves as sisters, Mm -hmm. sacred Mm -hmm. sisters. And these stories that we are sharing are sacred stories that have been in us. But now we are saying, here they are. Can they be a source of healing to you as well? Yes, sacred stories. And that's kind of what this podcast, Vibrant Happy Women, is about. I feel like it's a circle of sisterhood where here you are today sharing your story, your dreams, which you planted in the earth, and they grew. So take us forward to what has happened since you earned your PhD and being a guest on Oprah and that fifth goal of giving back to your community. Here's what one thing that happened in my life when I wrote down my dreams and I buried them. And I use the word bury, but in many ways I was planting because my mother said, when you bury them, then you'd see them grow and grow and grow. Mm-hmm. And I had to visualize myself what would it look like if I achieved these dreams? And I'd see myself with an undergraduate, see myself in America, see myself in an aeroplane that I had never been in. Mm-hmm. It became so strong making those mental images in myself. And so when I achieved my PhD and I realized, gosh, now I have a PhD, I couldn't find that inner joy. Even though when I walked that podium to receive that small paper that now says you are a PhD holder and I felt like a lawyer who had rested her case, even though I felt like that, somehow when I went home, I felt empty. And I kept on saying, dear mother, why did you make me write that fifth dream? The dream that you always call the sacred dream. Why? Where am I going to find the money to accomplish that dream. Well, then I remember Jolak, the woman who came to the village. She used the word Tinogona. It is achievable for you if you believe in your dreams. So I had my t-shirts, designed my t-shirts with Tinogona. It is achievable. And I said, I'm going to sell these t-shirts and go back home and build schools and go like a champion. Well, I only managed to sell 20 t-shirts. And my American friends, I was devastated. And then one day I got a phone call, the most memorable call of my life from Oprah Winfrey. And she donated $1.5 million towards that 50 dream to Ah. build schools back home. And I realized, gosh, my mother was right. It is about how our personal dreams are connected to the greater good. And today we have managed to build 11 schools. These are public schools in rural areas, seeing more than 6,000 children, both girls and boys, going through the education and receiving quality education. Mm, Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, so your dreams are amazing. I'm so happy for you to have fulfilled them. But now I feel like you have even more work that you feel you're doing, helping other women to recognize their, what you call in the book, their great hunger mm-hmm. and empowering themselves and awakening this movement of women rising up and speaking their dreams or bearing their dreams. Tell us more about how you're helping women do that. 
So here's what I'm doing. You know, many have asked me, do you have another dream to bury? And I always say, no, I don't have. I'm burying my my dreams in, in your hearts, in every woman's heart, in every man's heart. So I also realized that my own silencing and my own awakening, it wasn't because I am the smartest woman, no, but it is because of two things that happened in my life. Opportunity. If we give women opportunity, they can achieve their own dreams. And the second one was mentorship, mentoring, women coming together, helping one another, uplifting one another. I stand on the shoulders of many women. I stand on the shoulders of giants in my life. I wanted to come up with a book that would help women to really look into themselves and say, yes, I can achieve my dreams. And I'm providing with these tools in this book so women can really rally themselves around these tools. They are rituals that women have to go through in my book. I talk about burying your dreams. I talk about finding your great hunger in this book. I talk about the two kinds of hungers in our lives as women, the little hunger and the great hunger, the greatest of all hungers. And I want women to really get to those hungers and ask themselves, what breaks my heart? It is in those moments of our brokenness, in those moments when we feel overwhelmed, when we think that the world is collapsing around us, we find a yearning in our heart, a stirring to want to change the circumstances in ourselves as well as the circumstances in our own communities and the world at large. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's the reason why I came up with this book. So you have 10 steps or 10 essential tools that women can follow to identify their great hunger and start to recognize their talents and visualize the future. Can you tell us more about those steps as we close and everyone can get excited to try them out for themselves? Yeah. So the first step is identifying your great hunger. And as I say, there are two kinds of hunger. The little hunger, that's the hunger that says, I want it now, immediate gratification. And then the great hunger, the greatest of all, women, and especially as we get older, we become a little bit bitter when we don't live a life with purpose. We want to have purpose in our life. We want to live legacy in our life. And then the second one is recognizing our own talents. We have to recognize those hidden powers within. It's all within us. Let's tap into that. And the third one is understanding our own fears. You know, I post a lot of things on my Facebook around fears. It's important to understand your fear. Name it. Talk about it. Have a story around it. Share it. By doing that, you diminish that fear. Then visualize your future. It's important to make that mental image. For myself, I would go to that place where I had buried my dreams and I would sit down and I would reflect and I would visualize and see myself achieving all these dreams and I would see myself rubbing shoulders with giants and I would believe and I would live in that moment and find joy in that moment. Despite the fact that I was living in abject poverty, the fact that I was, I enabled myself to see a better future, it helped me. It became a healing process for me. Writing down your dreams is important. That's another 51. You know, if you don't write it, it's not going to happen. You have to write it down Mm -hmm. and you have to understand the steps that you need to achieve your dreams. And then ground yourself in faith and belief. The rituals that I talk about, find a ritual that will cement that 
that thing that you have written down that will cement the dream that you have written down. I love rituals. They ground me. They make me believe in myself. They make me believe in things that are impossible. Then the seventh one is cultivate gratitude. We have to be thankful. We have to be grateful in our life. And then establish your sawiras, your sisters, you know, the champions who will support you, you know, the sisters who will be there for you and you also be there for them. And then honor what I call, this is the last one, honor the sacred laws of the invisible ladder. My mother always say on this earth, she would always say on this earth, women, we are climbing an invisible ladder and it is its own laws that we have to obey. These are the moral sacred obligation that will make us giants. This ladder that we are climbing, it has rungs. There are other women who are at the bottom of the rung and there are others that are at the top of the rung. And it does not mean that those that are at the bottom of the, at the, bottom of the rung are poor or they are not smart. No, it only means that those who are at the top, they have a moral obligation to pull our sisters who are at the bottom. Let's pull all of us together so that at least we can achieve our dreams. That's the secret to our success, our ability to turn around and help one another and be genuine about it without expecting anything in return. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a giant sisterhood. I love that. So Ted and I, this has been amazing. I love, love, love your book. Everyone listening, be sure to go get your hands on The Awakened Woman, Remembering and Reigniting Our Sacred Dreams. It is so good. And I, I wish that I could sit in a circle with you and all the women you describe in the book around a fire under the stars and tell those stories and speak my dreams. It sounds so sacred and amazing. And I love your concept of sacred sisterhood. And um, Mm -hmm. if you could give our listeners one parting challenge before we say goodbye, what would that be? Wow. You know, maybe I can repeat what I wrote this morning on my Facebook when I said an awakened sister or an awakened woman is the one who finds joy and is the one who feels celebrated when another woman rises to power. Wow. Thank you so much for being on the show. I have chills. Everyone, be sure to grab The Awakened Woman, Remembering and Reigniting Our Sacred Dreams. Thank you so much, Terarai. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you for having me. Take care. So inspiring. I love the story of completely changing your life, having that vision, that nearly impossible vision in Terarai's case, and then making it happen, making it real. And now her children have an entirely different life, but bigger than that, Terarai is making such a big difference for all of the children in her community where she grew up. I hope it inspired you. What are your sacred dreams? Be sure to get Teradai's book, The Awakened Woman. Like I said in the interview, it's one of my top 10 favorite books of all time. It's so beautifully written and inspiring. And I love her concept of that circle of sacred sisterhood. And that's what I hope you feel this podcast is for you, a circle of sisterhood where we hold space for each other's dreams and desires and becoming the most vibrant and happy women we can be. I will see you next time with a happy bit. And next week, I'll be back with an interview with Courtney Donnelly 
founder of Vibrant Home, who will teach us how to have a more vibrant home. And don't forget, it is spring. And if you want some amazing, beautiful new window treatments, be sure to go to smithandnoble.com forward slash happy women to learn how they can walk you step by step through the process of making your home more vibrant and happy. Again, that's smithandnoble.com forward slash happy women. I will see you next time. And until then, take care. Thanks for listening to the Vibrant Happy Women podcast at www.jenriday.com.